Let's turn together this morning to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And this morning we're going to be looking um, at verses 4 through 8. Verses 4 through 8. If you found your way there, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 8. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not frightened for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. You can be seated. If you remember last week, we uh, began our study through this um, somewhat controversial, somewhat uh, uh, interesting chapter here in the book of Matthew. And, and as I shared last week, um, as we walk through some of this, a lot of this is, is more practical scholarly information than it is practical application in a lot of things because of just how Jesus is speaking here. Um, compared to his parables and other types of his teachings where he's presenting these lessons to them. Now here he's given the disciples these signs of, of a, a coming event that he had prophesied uh, there at the end of uh, chapter 23 when he said, Behold, your house is being to you, uh, left to you desolate. And then again at the beginning of this chapter when he points out the temple and he speaks to them and he says, Do you not see all these things? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And we talked about this prophecy having been fulfilled in AD 70 in the destruction of the temple there in Jerusalem under Titus as he came in with the Roman armies and they besieged Jerusalem and destroyed the entirety of the temple. Now, Jesus talks about not one stone being left upon another. And we talked a little bit about this last week, uh, about how everything was torn down. The city was entirely destroyed. The temple was completely desecrated down to the bottom. And I can't remember if I pointed it out last week, but I wanted to, to emphasize this fact that one of the things about the fulfillment of this prophecy and the utter destruction of this was that the temple, remember, was filled with gold and silver and all of these other precious metals. And so when this fire occurred, it melted all of that precious metal down into the crevices and the rocks underneath the temple. So when the Roman soldiers were finished destroying the temple, then they spent a large amount of time trying to dig the gold and the silver out of the ruins. And so they dug everything out, even the foundation stones, all this stuff out of the way in order that Jesus' prophecy would be perfectly fulfilled. So we need to understand this walking into this, that this is the complete and utter destruction of the temple, the complete and utter destruction of Jewish faith and practice as, as the world knew it at that period of time. And the reason that we need to understand this is because the disciples only had a taste of what this is going to look like. Uh, when Jesus said that not one stone would be left upon another, there's probably it was still a, an element of doubt inside the disciples' mind as of how catastrophic this destruction would be because as they looked at this giant edifice of the temple, and they saw how grand it was and how splendorous it was. And again, understanding that they are in a time of peace. This is a time of, of prosperity in a sense for them. Even though they're under Roman occupation, things were doing well for the Jews. They were able to worship. The temple was, was there. They were able to do all the things that they wanted to do. And so Jesus is, is trying to help them wrap their minds around that. And the natural question that they asked last week was, what, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
Now you remember the, the timing of these things. Jesus tells us actually there in chapter 24, if you skip on down uh, to verse 34, he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So as far as the timing, we understand that everything that we're going to hear Jesus say here in Matthew 24, he says all of these things will take place before this generation passes away. And the word Jesus uses as generation is the word that refers to the audience to which he is speaking. And so in our text this morning, what Jesus is going to begin to do is to, to unwrap the, the second part of that question. What will be the sign of of your coming? What will be the sign of your presence of when this event happens, when, when you come back, excuse me this morning, when you come back in judgment uh, on Jerusalem, what will be those signs? So the first thing that I want you to note is that this should be a time of watchfulness, a time of watchfulness. And look at what Jesus says. The first sign that he gives to them, he says, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. So the first part he says there is that see to it that no one misleads you. So we have to ask the question, only because of how oftentimes this chapter is interpreted with a futuristic viewpoint, we have to ask this question, to whom is Jesus speaking? Is Jesus speaking to his disciples, or is he speaking to some future generation yet to be revealed? Well, let's look at Jesus' words. He says, he said unto who? Them. See to it that no one misleads you. We find that word all throughout chapter 24. If Jesus were speaking of some future context, he would say they need to ensure that no one misleads them or they will need to be careful. They should do it. But notice what Jesus says. He says, see to it that no one misleads you. Verse six, you will be hearing of this. Be that you are not frightened. Verse 9, they will deliver you. Verse 15, therefore when you. Verse 23, therefore if anyone says to you, and over and over and over again, we see through Matthew 24, Jesus using that word you to reference the disciples, but also this understanding that he is speaking about events that will take place before the end of their generation. There's nothing in this text that would make us think that he's speaking to a future generation. In fact, one commentator said the burden of proof is on the futurist to prove that a future audience is in view, giving the use of Jesus' word, you. It's not on the one who would hold to a, a, a context of all these things being take place before AD 70. It's not up to us to prove it because that's exactly what it says. Jesus is speaking here in very plain language. If you and I were having a conversation and I said, you need to go to the grocery store, and when you get there, you'll see this happen. You wouldn't think that I was talking about your grandson going to the grocery store and seeing those things. You would understand me very plainly that I mean you, and you will see those things. And we need to understand when we read Scripture, we need to read it in the plainest context according to what is given here. So we see this, this watchfulness that he's calling them to. So he gives them a clear answer. And he gives them a clear answer because he says, see to it that no one misleads you. Now, but he also gives them a careful watch here because he says, see to it. So he calls them to this watchfulness in their individual lives. They're not just to live haphazardly, but there's something that's going to happen that they need to be careful of. He's causing them to, to watch their own lives, to watch their own teaching, to watch their own practice so that they could be looking for something. And what is that thing they're going to be looking for? What well, says, see to it that no one misleads you. This is interesting, isn't it? 
Because Jesus is saying that they need to be so watchful and careful that no one would mislead them. And Jesus is speaking to the disciples here. He's speaking to the ones who have been following after him for now some three, three, almost three and a half years. They've heard him teach. They've heard him proclaim the truth. They've watched him do miracles. They've given up everything to follow after him. If there's any group of people that we would point to in the New Testament and say these were men who were committed to the sake of the gospel, it would be the 12 apostles to whom Jesus is speaking. But yet Jesus warns them. He says, be careful. See to it. Be watchful that no one deceives you. Because see, something's getting ready to happen. One of the things that's going to happen after Jesus is crucified and dead and buried and resurrected and ascends back into heaven, in that period of time between that and what's going to happen in AD 70, something's going to happen that Jesus is warning his disciples against. And that would be the the arrival of false teachers. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But if the arrival of false teachers is what Jesus had warned them against, why would it be so dangerous for the disciples if these men were so concrete in their faith? Well, because we have to understand what Matthew Henry said. He said, seducers are more dangerous enemies to the church than those who persecute the church. Because it's easy to recognize an enemy if he comes through the door with a sword wanting to cut your head off. What's much harder to recognize is somebody who comes in pretending to be a brother, but then wants to teach you things that are contrary to the truth of the gospel, all while their hand is wrapped around their shoulder telling you how much they love you and they care about you. And we see this, brothers and sisters, we see this happening not only in the time of Jesus, but we still see this continuing to happen today because much of what Jesus talks about in this passage, although these events were fulfilled in the prophetic sense of what Jesus speaks of in AD 70, we see that those things are are things that are with us for the lifetime of, of Christianity. False teachers were not exclusive to the time of Jesus, and false teachers uh, will always be with us as long as the gospel is proclaimed because Satan understands this same thing that his easiest way for him to disrupt the spread of the gospel is not through persecution, although he does that. But the scripture tells us that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So when Satan persecutes the church, all he does in a sense is just cause a larger church growth program to occur. But what he can do that hurts the gospel is that he infiltrates false teachers into places where people are deceived and misled and taken away. And so even the disciples, Jesus says, you need to be careful that you are not deceived. So not only here do we see this time of watchfulness, but also there's going to be a time of false teaching that alludes into this. Because the reason that he's telling that no one misleads him is because there's going to be a time of false teaching in the middle of all this. He says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. We understand uh, the term of a false Christ to be an antichrist. Now, anti, that word means in the place of or against. Uh, So you can have somebody who is an antichrist in the sense that they proclaim uh, to be Christ. They proclaim to be a Messiah-like figure or to be Jesus himself reincarnated. Or you have sometimes antichrist figures who just stand up against the, the teachings of Christ. They're standing in the way of the teachings of the gospel. So somebody who claims to be the Messiah or standing in the place of the Messiah. But notice what Jesus says here about this. He says these antichrists, those who are going to be there, he says, many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ. And both Scripture and the historians from that period point to the number of false messiahs 
who arose in the time between when Jesus spoke these words and the destruction of the temple. First John chapter 2, children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. Just later in that chapter, he says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, maybe you were like me, but growing up, whenever I heard the term Antichrist, I never understood the concept of, of Antichrist as a, as a broad range of people and individuals who claim to be Christ or stand against the preaching of the gospel. The only thing that I ever imagined growing up when I heard the term Antichrist was the figure that we often see referred to in the book of Revelation. But there are multiple the, the scripture is replete with Antichrist who rose up against the gospel, who rose up against the true teaching of the scriptures. In fact, Albert Barnes in his commentary says, the land was overrun with magicians, seducers, and impostors who drew the people after them in multitudes into solitudes and deserts to see the signs and miracles by which they promised to show the power of God. So we find these many false teachers coming out. And in fact, we can look at other places in the Scriptures as well. Uh, in, in fact, in Acts chapter 13. Now again, so this is, in, again, in between this period of time, between when Jesus is speaking in AD 70, this is when they had gone through the whole island as, as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn away the proconsul from the faith. So there's this rise of false teachers. But not only is this rise of false teachers, but there's also numerous people being led astray. And so this is the danger that Jesus is warning about. He says that false teachers will come, but not only will they come, but will they mislead many. Now again, is this true in our day? It is. It, it happens still continually all throughout the history of the church. But the question that we have to answer here is if Jesus is speaking to his disciples and if he's speaking about an event that's forthcoming in their generation, we have to say, did these events happen in the lifetime of the apostles from when the time Jesus spoke before the destruction of the temple? And the answer is yes. In fact, if you remember in the book of Acts, Paul was accused of, of being one of those false teachers. There was an Egyptian who sometime in that period of time led out a revolt and led 4,000 men out of the Assyrians into the wilderness. He misled many, whoever this Egyptian was. He, mis he led these people out into the wilderness. And in fact, when John talks about the number of people uh, who were the, in the spe while speaking of Antichrist and those who stand against the gospel, this very familiar passage in 1 John chapter 2, what they went out of us, but they were not really of us. Whereas they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so it would be shown that they are not all of us. What's he talking about? He's talking about people who professed Christ, but then turned away, or people who believed a false gospel. But there were many who were being misled, many who were being taken away. In fact, um, Thomas uh, Newton, who was writing in 1754 in his commentary, said this, There were so many impostors preying on the gullibility of the people that under the procurorship of Felix, many of them were apprehended and killed every day. They seduced great numbers of people still expecting the Messiah, and well therefore might our Savior caution his disciples against them. 
And so the question would be, why was this happening so often? You know, why were there so many people being misled? Well, the answer is, is that the Jewish people had rejected Christ. The true Messiah had come. They had rejected him. They had cast him off as, as unimportant, cast him off as a false teacher, cast him off as a, as a worker of iniquity. And so what were the Jewish people still doing? They were still looking for a Messiah. They were still longing for a Messiah. And you remember the Jewish people's idea of what that Messiah was going to look like was somebody who would come in who would be a leader, somebody who would be a conqueror in that moment, who would come in and overthrow the Roman oppression, who would secure the kingdom of Jerusalem back to the Jewish people. And so because of this, they were still looking, they were still longing for this. So it made it very easy for people to rise up and say, oh, well, here I am, this promised Messiah. And, and no doubt, many of them had witnessed Jesus' miracles and the things he had done and said, oh, well, if I want to do this, I've got to do some type of grand events. I've got to do some type of miracles, just as Jesus did, in order to get these people to follow after me. And it's interesting in the sense that Jesus often went out into the wilderness to minister to people. And so what did these false teachers do? They led people out into the wilderness. They did all these types of things to, to mimic and to imitate the exact things that Jesus had done. And so we see numerous, many people being misled and being taken away by false doctrine. In fact, we see this happening not even just in the Jewish people. We see it also happening inside the church. The same warning that Jesus gave to his disciples. Remember what Paul wrote to the church at Galatia? He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. But there is not really another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So what was happening? The Judaizers had come in and began to teach a false gospel to the Galatian church. And Paul writes to them and he says, what you're being taught is not a true gospel. You're being taught by people. In fact, Paul continues one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament. He says, if anyone comes to you and preaches another gospel than that we have preached, let him be anathema. That word literally means cursed. And in the brutest form of the word, it means that it'd be better for that person to die instantly and go to hell in that moment than to continue to preach a false gospel. He says, judgment should fall upon them immediately if anybody teaches another gospel contrary to what the scripture teaches. So we see that this warning and this caution that Jesus is giving not only applies to the disciples, but applied to the churches large as well, because many of them, even after Jesus had resurrected, Many of them began to be seduced away by these false teachings, and Paul's passion there was to write to them and to warn them of what was taking place and to caution them against the prevalence of false teachers. But we also see here in verse 6 that it's also a time of war. He says, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of war. See to it that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Now, this again is, is one of those uh, chapters where we talk about that people oftentimes use these things towards future events. Anytime you see a war take place, uh, and I'm sure you've had these conversations with people, you know, a battle breaks out somewhere in the Middle East, something happens across the world, and you'll hear somebody say, oh, well, this is the, that's what the end times say. It says that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. So even if we held to that position, notice what Jesus says. He says what? That's not yet the end. Even if Jesus were talking about a future connotation here, saying wars and rumors of war, he very clearly says that even if you see that happening, that's not yet the end. 
So tomorrow, World War III could break out, and even if you held to a futuristic interpretation of this text, it does not mean that the end is near, because what does Jesus say? That is not yet the end. But the question is, is when Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars, again, let's look back at what's happening in the time in which the disciples were alive, because what does he say there? You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened. Now, this would have been, again, one of those things that would have been to the, to the disciples uh, a, a hard thing to wrap their minds around. Because when the time when Jesus was writing, the entirety of the Roman Empire was in a time of profound, feast, uh, of profound peace, uh, excuse me, which, mean, which is called the Pax Romana, which just means Roman peace. It was established under the rule of Augustus in 17 BC. And so the, the Roman Empire was in a time of peace. There was no wars. There was no rumors of war. There was no contention happening inside of the Roman Empire under which the Jewish people were under control at that time. So for Jesus to say this would have caused the disciples to understand that something serious is going to take place. Something is going to have to happen in order for these prophecies to be fulfilled. Now, wars are those things that are declared. Rumors of wars are things that are threatened but maybe not executed. But if you look back at history, what you find is that in the years leading up to AD 70, from the time in which Jesus is now speaking, there was a lot of things that took place that fulfilled perfectly these prophecies. In fact, in the years leading up to AD 70, there was a period of 18 months where four emperors uh, were met with violent deaths. And in fact, Marcellus Kick in his commentary on Matthew 24, he says, we're one to give an account of all the disturbances that actually occurred within the empire after Jesus' death, he would be constrained to write a separate book. We've referred back to Josephus, the Jewish historian who was alive at this time, who chronicled the destruction of the temple there in AD 70. And if we look at the title of one of his books, which is called The Wars of the Jews, it should help us to understand the amount of trouble that was occurring during these times. One commentator notes that during this period of time, there was an uprising against the Jews in Alexandria. In Seleucia, 50,000 were slain. In Caesarea, a battle between the Syrians and the Jews brought death to about 20,000 Jews. And that fight caused the Syrians and the Jews to be divided into many villages and towns inside of armed camps. In the, annual, in, the, excuse me, in the annals of Tacticus, another historic document, it covers the period of A.D. 14 to the death of Nero in A.D. 68, describes the time with phrases such as disturbances in Germany, commotions in Africa, commotions in Thrace, commotion, uh, insurrections in Gaul, intrigues among the Parthians, and the war in Britain, the war in Armenia. Wars were fought from one end of the Roman Empire to the other in the days of the apostles. So this time of peace that they were now experiencing after the death of Jesus went away. Wars began to happen. War, rumors of war began to take place. It was a completely different time than what the disciples were experiencing at this moment, but yet again, perfectly fulfilling what Jesus would say, that they would see all of these things take place before the end of their generation. But notice what Jesus says there. Although they were contentious times, he, he gives them this word of comfort. He says, do not be frightened. Do not be frightened. Ultimately, that the end has come because this is not yet the end. Uh, these are not signs of the end of Jerusalem yet, yet or not signs of the end of the world because more things would even have to take place before Jerusalem met its end and obviously before the end of the world. But the ultimate encouragement that Jesus was trying to give his disciples is that do not be frightened when you see these things begin to take place because God's plan will not stop. We need to understand that. 
Because God had sent, Jesus had sent the disciples out with a, with a message. He had sent them out with a purpose, and that was to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And after his resurrection, Jesus is going to give them that ultimate great commission that we see in Matthew chapter 28. But Jesus knew, because he was already prophesying here, that after he was gone, after he had ascended back into heaven, that everything was going to come unfolded in the nation of Jerusalem and in the Roman Empire. And they were going to see all of these things. And Jesus knew, because the disciples were human beings just like you and I, that as they began to look around, and they saw wars, and they saw rumors of wars, and they saw people being misled into false doctrine, and they saw all these things being taken place, that they would begin to be discouraged. What hope is there? What are we going to do? How can we do any of this? And Jesus says, do not be frightened. Do not be troubled. For these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Don't worry about what you see happening. You should worry about focusing on what I have called you to do. Brothers and sisters, the same thing applies to you and me. It's very easy oftentimes for people to sit around and look at what's happening around the world and be discouraged. And we see things that are happening in our country. And listen, let's be honest this morning. Our country is in a horrible state. Morally, spiritually, financially, wherever you want to put it, we're in a bad place in our nation. But guess what? It doesn't stop the spread of the gospel. It doesn't stop the work of the church. It doesn't stop what we are called to do. If America ceased to exist next week, the gospel is not thwarted by the existence or the non-existence of America. We look back over history. Nations have risen, nations have fallen. What has stood true? The church, the gospel, and the call of God's people to proclaim the truth of the gospel. So he encourages his disciples, don't be discouraged. Because these things are going to happen. I'm giving you the warning now. I'm giving you the understanding now that all these things take place, but that is not yet the end. But we also see in here the, necess the necessity, not only of, of the uh, but the necessity of fulfillment. Because all these things have to take place. Why? Because Jesus has proclaimed them and because ultimately all these things have to take place for the fall of Jerusalem and for the fall of the temple in order to cement in the fact of everyone who was willing to see it and everyone who was willing to take observation of it that the old covenant had passed away and that the new covenant had come. That was what was being demonstrated so profoundly in the destruction of the temple. The Jews had rejected their Messiah. And God, even more broadly than he did in Jesus' death on the cross, he says, now you rejected the Messiah, now I'm going to destroy the very hope that you have. Because they should have hoped in Christ, but they were still hoping in the temple. They should have trusted in Jesus, but they were still trusting in the Old Testament law. And he said, now I'm going to destroy the one thing that you're hoping and longing in, in this demonstration that you have nothing to hope in outside of Christ. So all these things had to take place. But we also see in verse 7 that this was a time of uncertainty. It was uncertainty because there was instability politically, economically, and environmentally. Let's take a look at that first. There was instability politically because it says nation will rise against nation. And I wanted to uh, just to read a quote here. And this is again from uh, Roman historian Tacticus, which uh, we quoted earlier. He says, I'm entering on the history of a period rich in distresses, frightful in its wars, torn by civil strife, and even in peace full of horrors. There were three civil wars that were more with foreign enemies than there were often wars that had both characters at once. There were disturbances in many different places. 
So we see that there was this political instability. They'd been so used to having peace, but now things weren't that way anymore. So even outside of, of wars on a grand scale, there was instability, uh, instability politically because there were smaller battles that were taking place that wouldn't have been characterized as wars, but there were uprisings. People rising against the government, rising against political leaders, rising against all of these things. And so again, as the disciples begin to witness these things take place, their minds would be called back to this text where Jesus is warning them that all of these things will happen. But there was also uh, instability economically. And what I mean by that, where Jesus says that in various places there will be famines. Because famines affects the economy because if people can't eat, people can't do the things that they uh, need to do. So there was instability in the sense that there were famines throughout the region. Acts chapter 11, uh, we see referenced one of those famines. It says one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. This same famine is also mentioned by Josephus, confirming, uh, again, from an outside source that this did take place. So that's only one of them. Uh, but in fact, in the New Testament for English readers, the author notes that Suetonius speaks of continual droughts, and again, referring to Tacticus, of the death of crops and then famine. So again, in this period of time between uh, Jesus' death in AD 70, we see numerous famines that occurred throughout the region of Jerusalem, throughout the Roman Empire, uh, which caused people to, to be hunger, caused people to, uh, to be suffering to, uh, to pestilence and other types of things. In fact, Luke in his common, excuse me, Luke in his, um, in his rendition of this text, where he refers to also to plagues and to signs in the heavens. And so Matthew doesn't mention the two of those, but I want to mention those as well, because since we're talking about this same passage here, that we can also see the fulfillment of those two things in the events that occurred between Jesus' death and A.D. 70. Josephus says, Thus did the miseries of Jerusalem go worse and worse every day, and the seditions were still more irritated by the calamities they were under, even while the famine preyed upon themselves after it preyed upon the people. And indeed, the multitude of carcasses that lay in heaps one upon another was a horrible sight and produced a pestilential stench that was a hindrance to those who would make salads out of the city and fight the enemy. So Josephus says that the famines that hit Jerusalem were so bad that the bodies were just lying in the street. And that there were so many bodies and the smell was so bad that even those who wanted to go out and fight it, it was they couldn't hardly even get out because of the smell and because of the stench. Now we need to understand if you have a lot of dead bodies lying in the street, what do you also have that's going to begin to happen to the people? They're going to begin to suffer under disease and plague. So now we see here the reference to these plagues that Jesus has given in, in, in Luke's gospel, that we understand that those things did take place as well. Now what about the signs in the heavens? Because when we talk about signs in the heaven, you say, well, how could there have been signs in the heaven during this period of time? Well, uh, under Nero's reign, and this is one of the things that many people refer to as the fact of why uh, Nero eventually ended up committing suicide, was that uh, a Halley's Comet appeared uh, during the reign of Nero in AD 66. And so many people viewed, especially in the Roman Empire, that a comet was a sign uh, that judgment was coming uh, upon the emperor. And so he saw that as a foreteller of his doom, and so he ended up taking his own life. But again, that would be a sign in the heaven. And in fact, in addition to that, Josephus says that when the temple was ablaze, 
uh, when the temple was burning down, a bright star resembling a sword stood over the city, and that comets were visible for a year after that. And so over again, commentator after commentator, historian after historian, refers to all of these types of events taking place during the time of, uh, during the time of Jesus, and excuse me, during the time after Jesus spoke these words. Now the last thing that I want you to notice here is there's instability environmentally. Jesus says that there will be not only famines, but there will also be earthquakes. Now, it's interesting in my study of this because many of you have probably heard people say that when it talks about earthquakes, they'll reference the fact that it's like, oh, well, earthquakes have become more numerous, you know, in the last few years, and that means that the end of the world is coming. Well, nowhere in the Scripture does Jesus talk about the number of earthquakes and the increasing of earthquakes. He just says that there's going to be earthquakes that happen. And so for many years, people believed that, right? Because we began to see that there were more earthquakes happening, per se, than there were, say, 50, 60, 100 years ago. Well, it only makes sense, right? Because now we have better equipment to detect smaller earthquakes than we did 60, 70, 100 years ago. So it's not that there are more earthquakes occurring. In fact, now scientists say that the number of earthquakes are pretty much on par with how they've always been. Uh, So it's not that there's an increase in any of those things happening, but the question is, is, Were there earthquakes that happened after Jesus spoke these words before the destruction of the temple in AD 70 that would have fulfilled this prophecy? Many of we, uh, we can call these off the top of our head because they're very familiar to us. Jesus was crucified. What happened? An earthquake took place. Uh, When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, behold, a severe earthquake had occurred and the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and rolled away the stone. Acts chapter 16, when Paul is in prison, an earthquake hits the city, shakes the prison so that the doors are open. And then historians note that other great earthquakes happened in Crete in AD 46, Rome in AD 51, uh, Phrygia in AD 53, Laodicea in AD 60, um, Campania in AD 62, and Pompeii in AD 63. So there's numerous earthquakes that are happening after this as well. So all of these things, what we need to understand is that Jesus' words are true. When he says this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, Jesus was being truthful. And when he says, you will see these things, every one of the disciples, they were able to witness all of these events taking place before the end of their generation because destruction and judgment was coming upon Jerusalem. God's judgment, Jesus is going to return in his spiritual presence upon the destruction of the temple. But now the last thing that I want you to notice in verse 8 is that this is actually a time of hope. He says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Now, there's a certainty of all of these signs because Jesus says that all these things will happen before the the judgment falls on Jerusalem. And he says all of these things. So not one of these things is going to go unaccomplished. And as we've looked this morning, all of these things were accomplished. But I want you to understand that there is a hope in these signs. Now, birth pangs talks about the idea of of travail as another word it might use, depending if you have a different translation this morning. Uh, But birth pangs are the idea of labor pains, right? And now labor pains are difficult. Now, I cannot stand here this morning and say that I understand what that feels like. But having been married and having talked to other people who have been pregnant, I can understand that. I can come nowhere near fathoming what that feels like. But what we do know is that labor pains 
or a time of difficulty that end what? In a glorious blessing. Oftentimes you hear people refer to this idea of birth pangs as being travailing and they just talk about the pain part, right? And they talk about that, that these are merely the beginnings of the birth pangs and they just talk about the, the difficulty. They just talk about the travailing. They just talk about the pain. But they don't talk about what does that mean? Because when a woman goes into labor, although there's a time of difficulty and a time of pain, it results in a glorious blessing. Now, I've spoken to, to many different mothers, and Becky and I have talked about this before, is that although a woman will never forget the trial and the labor of childbirth, the, the memory of what that feels like, and the memory of the pain and the difficulty that they go through, they'll say that sometimes the memory of that pain lessens over time, right? I've heard women say before, it's like, if, if I could remember how bad it hurt, I would never have another one, right? They would say if, if you kept that, the fullness of that memory all, always on the front of your mind, you would be less, you'd be more hesitant to ever have another child. But God reduces that. He, he takes that, that memory partially away. And that the ultimate thing of that is because the joy of motherhood, the joy of holding that newborn baby in your hands, overwhelms the pain and the difficulty that you had to go through. It was worth it. Right? The, 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 the trial and the tribulation and the labor of, of, of childbirth is worth it when you hold that child in your hands and you look at it for the first time. It was all worth it. Marcellus Kick says, he says, these labor pains, he says, it speaks of better things to come, of a new birth. It speaks of the regeneration of the world. As these birth pangs were to be in the earth, so would the birth or regeneration occur upon the earth. Thus, the birth pains which Christ revealed in the first section were not indicative of the final experience of the world. Better things were going to come. Christ is establishing his rule and his reign. He's establishing the truth and the supremacy of the gospel. There is no other way to God except through him. As we look back at this this morning and we think about these things and we're going to continue looking on next week to see more things that are going to take place and more of the signs that Jesus gives. We need to be reminded of the same warning that Jesus gave to his disciples. They were not worried or troubled. Because this is what I think the understanding of looking at this passage and understanding that all of these things were fulfilled in Jesus's, and these things were fulfilled in, in the time after Jesus's life that his disciples would see all these things take place, is it encourages by that because we're not so worried about trying to look for the signs in our own day. Because so many people get carried away with that. I've known numerous people who would spend hours and hours trying to point to political events, point to political leaders, point to uprisings around the world, and say, look, here, see, this means that this is going to happen. In fact, all you have to do is go back through American Christian history, and you see this happen just all the way through, especially in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, um, men like Hal Lindsey, Chuck Smith, all these guys were pointing and saying, oh, well, we, we are confirmed that, the, the, that Jesus will come back before 1981. And then he did. He said, oh, well, we were, we were just miscalculated. And in fact, Jesus will come back before this day. There was a gentleman who wrote a book, and I remember seeing a copy of it many years ago, 88 Reasons That Christ Will Return in 1988. 1988 came, 1988 went. So what did he do? He wrote a new book, 89 Reasons Christ Will Return in 1989. 
So people get so caught up in trying to interpret these signs in a way that's unnecessary. Because Jesus says all these things will take place in this generation, and they were. So what do we understand? We understand that these are not things that we're looking for in the future. These are things that already occurred. But what we are looking for is the continuation of Jesus' mission upon the earth. Our goal as believers is not to sit around and try to estimate when Jesus is going to come back. Because Jesus says no man knows the day or the hour. So why would we worry ourselves with that? Why don't we worry ourselves with the thing that Jesus has told us to do, and that's to preach the gospel to every creature. And as we're preaching the gospel to every creature, you know what happens? We see the fulfillment of what Jesus is saying is that the gospel is above all things. It's above Judaism. It's above the old covenant. All of these things, he has come in a new way now to fulfill all of these things so that every man, woman, and child, whether Jew, Gentile, or Greek, can come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we believe Jesus is coming again, and we long for that day. We long for the day when Jesus steps out of the eastern sky and returns to establish uh, his rule and his reign more permanently upon the earth. But we don't believe for a moment now that Jesus is not ruling or reigning. We know that he is. He sits at the right hand of God. And even though he's not physically present on the earth, he's ruling and reigning right now upon this earth. Because if he didn't, all hell would break loose. And so we have a hope and a trust. This passage does not bring us grief. This passage brings us joy because we know that all these things are merely the beginnings, that the end result of what was going to happen in the destruction of Jerusalem was that a great and glorious hope was established, that the gospel has come. And it is our job to proclaim the truth of who Christ is as long as we are able to do so. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of the scriptures, the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that as we look and we see, Lord, prophecy fulfilled even in that period of time, Lord, that it just confirms to us over and over again, Lord, the truth of the scriptures. Lord, that Jesus fulfilled every prophecy about the Messiah. And Father, even as we see him speaking here about events that were yet to take place in his day, But Lord, as we look back and we see how every single one of those things were fulfilled just exactly as he said it was, Lord, it gives us hope, it gives us confidence, and it gives us trust, Lord, in the truth of Jesus and the truth of who you are. Lord, we pray that we would be committed to the gospel. Lord, that we would not be distracted by things that don't necessarily matter in the immediate, but Lord, we would be concerned with the eternal things. Lord, that we would give our lives to the truth of the gospel. We would give our lives, uh, Lord, to seeking to live in such a way, Lord, that we are, Father, that we are satisfied at the end of our life with how we have lived. Lord, I pray that there's not one person in this room who would come to the end of their days and look back with regret at what they didn't do for you. But Father, may we establish it now that we want to give ourselves to your work. Give ourselves whatever that may look like. Lord, that we want to avail ourselves for you to use however you see fit. Because we understand the great hope of the truth of the gospel. That you are ruling and reigning. And Lord, you desire to change this world for the good of this world and for the glory of God. Lord, we want to be a part of that. 
And we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.